Father, thank you for bringing us once again into this uh, blessed time of being together with those with whom we share fellowship in Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can come and gather, that we can encourage one another, that we can spend time with one another, but that we can do so in the context of coming to worship you and honor you and coming to render to you what you are due and to give you the praise that you deserve, to do so by uh, expressing our praise in many ways and by listening to you, receiving your word as you've revealed it in your scriptures. And we thank you that you've given these to us so that we can know you, that we can know you uh, to the degree that you have revealed yourself now and in a way that is perfectly accurate. And so we ask that you would help us to understand not only what you want for us on an individual level, but also uh, what you desire to see in the world. And we pray that this class would be used for that as well. We ask that you give us understanding, uh, help our thinking to be rightly aligned with what you have told us, and we pray that you'd be honored by that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, uh, good morning, everyone. We are returning this morning to our study of government and the Christian life, and what we want to do this morning is to consider the question, what should the government be? So what should the government be? Uh, the next class, we'll talk about what the government should do. But I want to talk this morning about what the government should be with regard to uh, what should the structure and the uh, representation or the, uh, the um, people who are in the government as government officials, who and what should they be and how should they be set up? And does the Bible have anything to say about this? Uh, I want to ask you to consider the question as we begin, what do we want or what do you want personally for the government to look like? How would you like it to be set up? And then I want us to think about uh, some other questions, but how would you like it to be set up? If you could just say, this is the way that I would want government to run, how would you like it to be set up? Say, so that's a dangerous question because now we're talking about politics and we're already talking about religion, of course, because that's what we do. But now we're talking about politics. Well, maybe not so much, but if you, if you had maybe certain features that you would like to see in the government as far as the structure and who's doing it, what would you like to see? Yeah, Mark. Okay, and are you referring to um, like our national federal government, our state government, local, kind of the whole thing? Okay. Yeah, but primarily you're just talking federal structure you're good with, just the mindset of the people who are, who are running it. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, okay, cool. What else? I'm not evaluating your opinions at this point or anything like that. I'm just... I'm just asking you to think, like, what would you like, to, what would you like it to be? What would you like it to, uh, to look like? Yeah, Stephen. Okay, so once again, not so much concerned about the structure, 
maybe the size, but not the structure itself, but more about who is running it. So in this case, you would like to see Christians running the government. Yeah, okay. What else? Anybody else? got in the, What would you like to see? Governmental structure or who is in it or how that works. Yeah, Kyle. Coherent arguments? We can't have any of those. Yeah, we, we can't have that. I, I've often heard people, and I suppose maybe I, I should have uh, read or listened to a reading of these at some point, but I've heard people reference the Lincoln-Douglas debates as an example of these are people making serious, extended, nuanced arguments about things that are on a political level, and I, I said I wouldn't evaluate your opinion, but I don't see a lot of that going on, at least very publicly and visibly today, so yes. Yeah. So less soundbite driven as far as how things come to pass and then more substance and, and serious conversation kind of driven and serious argument driven. Is yeah, that, Yeah, good. What else? What would you like to see? Government structure, government officials. Or me? Jubilee? Yeah. Yeah, so a jubilee year for the federal government. Yeah. Yeah, every 50 years. Hey, I had not thought about that before. Okay. Anything else you'd like to see? Yeah, Chad. Yeah, so you'd like to see money come out of those kind of positions. Yeah, you'd like to see it driven by some other motivation to get in that. Yeah, okay, good. Anybody else? Yeah, and so that's, that's a, a, a great way to kind of lead into not so much what we're talking about this morning, but where I do want to go with this, which is uh, as, we, as we move on in this study, one thing that I want to consider is uh, what should we do about it when the government is not what it ought to be? And then what are we allowed to do about it? Um, what's modeled for us in Scripture, what's commanded in Scripture, and what is permitted in Scripture? And that, that really, to me, is the pressing question, but it requires actually thinking about what, what the government should look like. What does God say that it should look like? 
uh, versus what are things that maybe we want because we are Americans or because we're human beings and we have uh, motivations of various kinds. Sometimes the reason why government shows up as bad is because it does things that just go against what we know to be wrong as human beings. Other times when the government does things that are, is bad, it's, we only know that it's bad because the Bible has revealed to us that there are things that they should not be doing or uh, that they are doing. Uh, and we need to, we, we only, again, we only know that it needs correction because of what scripture says. But nonetheless, we need to be able to know what the government ought to look like kind of as a general idea before we go about saying well, this is what we need to do to change it. So, um, yeah, we want to think about what we want. We also then, of course, want to submit that to what does God want? What does God want the government to look like? And sometimes that question is assumed based upon the fact that we are Americans and the government should look like it does or at least was meant to be when the founding fathers uh, set out to make a government that would be the, you know, the best government that they could think of. Now, uh, before I even go any further with that, I am in no way denigrating the founding fathers who are much smarter than me and much wiser than me in these matters. But we do need to just make sure we're always stopping and thinking, what does God say about this versus what do we assume because we have grown up in a certain culture or because we didn't grow up in a certain culture? Uh, we will always want to go back to what does God say? What does the scripture say about these things? Um, one thing as we're going through as well is what does God require for the government to be versus what does God allow the government to be? Um, and then also what is wise for the government to be? And we need to make sure that we are sorting out those things. What is permitted, what is required, and what is wise? What is a good way to operate within what is permitted and what has not been required? So just keep those, uh, keep those kinds of things in your mind as well. All right, let's talk about the government structure. We'll talk about this morning uh, about structure, and then assuming we can get to it, we'll talk a little bit about what rulers ought to be. And then uh, uh, the next class, we'll talk about the functions, what the government should be doing with its structure or within its structure and what the rulers should be doing. So structure, uh, what are some types of government structure? What are some common or even some strange types of government structure? Monarchy, which means ruled by a, by a king or like one ruler. Yep, monarchy, yeah. Shannon, is that democratic? Yeah, yeah, so democratic monarchy, okay. Yeah, you would vote in that, that ruler, yeah, okay. Republic, okay. So, uh, yeah, and we would be a, uh, you know, our, our federal system has a lot of democratic uh, voting involved with it, but it then elects uh, representatives. So there's a republic. Uh, it is a republic. Yeah, what else? Matt? Dictatorship. Yeah. Yeah, dictatorship. Is that anybody's favorite type of government? Yeah. <laughs> we got one. Yeah. Anything else? Theocracy, yes, absolutely. We'll talk about that. Theocracy? Patrick? Oligarchy? Oligarchy? Okay. Which would be? Okay. Yep. And they might, uh, there might be a functioning 
like official person, right? But or official government, but the oligarchy is then the one that functionally carries out the rule. Is that would that be accurate to what you're saying? Okay. <laughs> okay. What else? Pure democracy. Yeah. Vote on everything as much as you can. It's really hard to have a pure, pure democracy, isn't it? Like vote on literally everything the government ever does. But yeah, pure democracy. Yes. What about uh, strong central government versus more decentralized? Those are some of the other. That's not really a type of government per se. Um, but even what we have in our country, a, a federal system where you have a federal government and then you have those things that are more spread out down to, uh, down to states and localities. Yeah, anything else? No, okay, good. Well, those are just a few examples. Um, so these are just various types of government structure. We're just, these are the ones that exist. There are, obviously there are others and there have been others throughout history, but these are some of the main, most common types of uh, ways that people think about it. I forgot to mention anarchy as well, but I think I've talked about that before. Not really a government structure, but it is the absence of it. Uh, let's think for a minute about what the government looked like under the old covenant. What did Israel's government structure look like? And just up front, I want you to note that throughout the course of God's dealings with Israel and the time leading up to Christ, the government structure was changed within the context of the old covenant era. And God operated within those changes, and other than rebuking the attitudes, he largely didn't say anything negative about the change from one to the other. Um, in fact, he was aiming for something, but the thing that he was aiming for, which is ultimately to have a monarchy, to have a ruler after his own heart, was one that uh, came about initially because Israel had a wrong attitude. So the one that he was going for and the way that he got there, that's actually what he judged them for or what he, uh, what he rebuked them for along the way. But we start with uh, Moses and then Joshua. You had a single leader who is not really a king, but kind of like, a, I mean, just one guy. Obviously, Moses led with Aaron at his side, but but Moses was clearly the guy in charge. And there was one leader for all these people that led them out of Egypt. And he was there, in a sense, he was their military leader. Uh, Joshua seemed to be more of a military leader, of course, going in and conquering the, the promised land. But he was kind of the do-it-all, kind of everything. In fact, he would serve at, um, in certain cases as the judge over the people and not like the Old Testament word of judge in that sense, but as a judge of legal matters. We read about this in Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Exodus 18, where Moses is told by his father-in-law, you can't judge every case while the people stand around waiting for you. You're going you're gonna to break and they're not going to be get their, They're not going to be happy because their cases are not going to be judged. So you got to you got to uh, make sure that you spread out the work on this. And Moses did that, and things went great, um, at least in a sense for a time. But Moses was a leader. Joshua was a single leader. Then, in the absence of Joshua, it, you turn to what we might call pure theocracy pure theocracy. And even in this, it doesn't mean that there were no leaders or no government officials, but there was no king. There was no kind of head of state. 
uh, there's nobody at the end of the day who is in charge other than God is in charge through his law. And people were, uh, they were rulers or they were leaders on a local level. There were to be those who judged legal matters. There were priests uh, and there were the elders of the people. But at the end of the day, God was the one who was the ruler. So he didn't really have a Moses. He didn't really have a Joshua that was ruling over Israel at that time. And when you come to the book of Judges, uh, excuse me, book of uh, 1 Samuel, and the way that God describes this, even though there's some hints in the book of Judges that they needed a king, um, God still says, you know, I was your ruler. I was your king. And when you're asking for this one ruler to replace me, you are asking to replace me. You don't want me to be your king. So he is okay with this in this regard with just not having an ultimate head of state or a group of people who were the head of state uh, in the sense that we might expect to have it or that he had before and after. Uh, During the time of the judges, you had judges. But these guys were sort of one-off leaders who would come up for a specific purpose. They would rule for a while. God raised them up. But it wasn't ever meant to be this defined, ongoing kind of, uh, you know, this is the government structure of Israel. Now we are ruled by judges, and now we've written this into the law, and we've encoded it. It wasn't really like that. It was just the product of any time Israel messed up. It was kind of like the repairman who would come and who would fix Israel for a certain amount of time. And there were a number of those. You can read about those in the book of Judges. And then Israel moved on to... The monarchy. Now, how did they get to the monarchy? How did they get there? Uh, does anybody know how this came about? Yeah, they asked Samuel for a king. Why did they ask Samuel for a king? Okay, they wanted to be like everyone else. That is actually at the heart of it. They, uh, they had an excuse for it. You guys remember what it was? Yeah, yeah. So Samuel is uh, Samuel was a, a really good judge over Israel. He's the the one who is described in the first several chapters of First Samuel. But Samuel's sons did not follow the Lord like him, and they were uh, they were worthless men. And so the people said, "Yeah, your your sons they don't follow the Lord like you. They're not they're not good rulers like you. So we need a king like the other nations who are around us." And it's kind of an excuse. So yeah, First Samuel or First. Yes, 1 Samuel 8 describes this in verses 7 through 9. I want to read that for you. 1 Samuel 8, verses 7 through 9. This is a pivotal moment in the government structure of Israel, of course. And uh, verse 4, actually. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the king was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they're doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. And then, of course, the procedure is described below uh, 
Verse 11, he'll take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, some to do his plowing, some to reap his harvest, some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take, also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks. You yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your kingdom. You've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So this whole idea of government kind of taking things for themselves is not really anything new, is it? So this was, I mean, they were warned ahead of time and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. So it will be like all the nations. Now, this, of course, comes on the heels of 1 Samuel 7, where after rejecting God and having being defeated so much so that the Ark of the Covenant was captured, God brought the Ark of the Covenant back and defeated the Philistines with a great victory. He did so with some kind of supernatural element. There's a thunder and lightning that's described in 1 Samuel 7. It's very clear God is capable of defeating the nations around them if they just listen to the voice of the Lord. But they don't do it. They don't want it. And that's why 1 Samuel 8 is so condemning of their motivation because God has proved that he can handle this if they just worship him and if they follow him. Nonetheless, they ask for a king and as we know from redemptive history afterward, God uses this to bring about ultimately a man after his own heart, which would not be the first king Saul, but then David. Even David was not the ultimate man after God's own heart, and he sinned against the Lord, showing that there's a need for a perfect king to come, which of course we know will only come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then you have a transition from this sort of pure theocracy, occasional judges, occasional military rulers like Moses and Joshua, not just military, but sort of overall rulers, into a monarchy. And God, though he hated the motivations for Israel doing it, was fine with the change. There wasn't right or wrong, one way or another. The structure itself was not an issue. Um, then you have, after the monarchy, so you have the kingdom splits, and that lasts for a while, and then Israel is taken away into captivity, and there's even a prophecy in Jeremiah that the throne of David will sit vacant for a long time, and that's exactly what did happen and what has happened. Um, so the monarchy was uh, ended, they were taken into captivity, into Assyria and Babylon, as we learned about in the book of Daniel, and then there was no king and they uh, were brought back into the land. So even Israel, or even in, in the, the post-exilic time, there was a different structure than there was before. Now, this is not ideal. This is not what God ultimately promises. But that's the way that it was. So I just want to make the point that in the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, in Israel, even when God gave very specific instructions for how the nation was to be set up, that there wasn't one prescribed form of government even for them where it has to be this way. And when it is, it's ultimately because they chose it and they rejected God. And when Christ reigns, it will be because he himself was, is uh, promised by God according to a promise that was made to David. So there's just a lot of latitude, even within what, what, uh, what was laid down by God in the law. There's multiple options 
So all of that to say that there, if there's no command there, we should strongly consider whether there is a command as far as structure goes for anywhere else. So that's the government under the old covenant. Any questions or comments on that before we move on to further structure questions? Government under the old covenant? Yeah, Patrick. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and they're not necessarily sanctioned by God. It's just that's just the way that it was. You don't really, I don't even see anything about that necessarily, like even when, when Jesus shows up on the earth. Uh, he has a lot of words to say about the evil of these people, but I don't know of anything about, like, why did you put together this group of people to lead the nation? You know, why are you doing this in this way? It, it isn't really about that. He doesn't seem to rebuke that at all. Now, of course, in the background, the whole time is, well, you guys should repent and bring in this, you know, the monarchy led by the Messiah. But still, it is interesting. He doesn't say anything about that. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, Stephen. Yeah, it's always God ruling this nation through his, whichever way he appoints specific rulers to be. So, yeah, as opposed to a pure theocracy, I suppose, in the absence of one, you know, uh, sanctioned overall structural kind of thing, kind of ruler. Yeah, they, they all are a theocratic rule. Yeah, it's, it's all God ruling, either whether it's directly or through somebody. It, it always is that. Yeah, yeah. They're trying to get out from under it. <laughs> but they they can't yeah like we'll get a king so god isn't our king anymore nice try yeah okay good so uh just briefly the government structure for god's earthly kingdom uh what does it say that will be the manner of jesus ruling the nations what's predicted in isaiah uh i think it's chapter 11 what is spoken of in the book of Revelation? Jesus will rule the nations with what? A rod of iron. A rod of iron. Does that speak of harshness? Uh, I mean, potentially. And people who re rebel against him and disobey him, yes. Does it mean that's the only component of his character? Of course not. Uh, Jesus is also the one who is, uh, the, will not put out the bruised reed. He, uh, he's not going to be, he's not going to trample on uh, the one who is, battered but he also when someone rebels against him there's going to be trouble there will be trouble so yes jesus is going to rule as an absolute yet generous dictator so the nations will literally belong to him as his inheritance we've seen this from psalm 2 and recent uh, sermon subjects and the other thing is we won't he won't do it alone he is not going to be the sole government official ruling the nations how do we know this can you think of anything in the bible that tells us about other people reigning with him 
Okay? Yeah, rulership of cities. There's the, there's the parable of the talents. Am I right about that? Where you've, you've ruled well over, or you've had five talents. I'll give you five cities. Am I, am I thinking about that right? Yeah, somebody check me if I'm wrong on that. But yes, cities are described there. Yeah? Yeah, and not only that, but we are, uh, we are in his image and we are, uh, we, we are that in not only a restored way, which was uh, marred at the fall, but in a way that is even more glorious than it was before. And there's a trajectory in the New Testament of, yeah, you uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we will be glorified. We will be revealed with Christ in glory. Uh, we are being renewed, Colossians 3 says, after the image of the one who created us. And we're being conformed, Romans 8 says, to the image of Christ. So there is this, uh, yeah, not only are we image bearers of God in general, and everyone who is a human being, even in their sin, is still called an image bearer of God. James 3 talks about that. But also, we're being, we're being made in a way like him that Adam even was not. And we will then rule on, uh, on his behalf over the earth and, are, uh, and will be reigning, yeah, uh, with, with the actual God in the flesh with us. Yeah. Yeah, great point. What else? Patrick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, and uh, there's a passage I'm thinking of as well that complements that. Matthew 19, um, verse 27, Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, yeah, there's, uh, there's this promise as well. You have a, uh, a promise in 1 Corinthians 6 to believers. He says, verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So there is a rulership that is described there. In, by that uh, an authority in some level that's described and he says look you guys can't even handle your matters between yourself and the church how do you expect to be able to rule the world on Christ's behalf and to judge angels so you gotta you need to start acting like who you are yeah um, Jesus promises believers to sit on his throne Revelation 2 I think it's verse 27 he talks about that just as he has been made to sit on uh, the throne of his father so, yeah, there are these promises of believers as well being involved in the governance of the, uh, of the kingdom that Christ brings. Okay, let's talk about um, government structure a little bit more, a couple different ways. Uh, God's requirements for government structure. God's requirements for government structure. 
I don't really have anything here. I just have a, just a point, God's requirements. It's, it's a, an empty point because I don't really know of much in the Bible by way of command as far as just overarching commands that the government must be structured in a certain way outside of what he commanded Israel to do when he did command them to do something. So there's very little by way of command. And what we need to do then, uh, well, when God commands things, he's much more concerned with the character of leaders. And we will talk about that here a little bit later this morning. So then we want to think about applying biblical wisdom to government structure. If we were going to set up a government structure, what are the kinds of things that we ought to consider? So if you're thinking about only what the Bible says about government, about man, about God, about sin, about the gospel, um, what would you think would be some good principles to try to use to structure the government? What would be the, the principles at the basis of that? What, what would you do? Okay, yeah, so we are, we are accounting for the depravity of man. How can we structure the government in such a way as that someone who is sinful might be in that position at some point, might have that authority? So, yeah, you want to think about that. Even if it's not the case now, what would that look like down the road? Yeah, okay. Patrick? Yeah, so you think you're not even just talking about his own personal character developed by that. You're talking about familiarity with what he was supposed to do in his office. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe some, some kind of, at least the government officials should be forced or tested on knowing what does the law say? You know, what, what, is the, what, are you actually, uh, what are you actually governing according to? And not just, well, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Is that kind of, that's the point you're making? Mm-hmm. So some sort of degree of knowledge and competence about the actual laws and, and system that they're supposed to be following. Yeah. Yeah. That would be cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they need to have power and they need to have the resources to do the job, right? So you're just basically arguing that there needs to be a, an ability for the government to actually function. If there's something for them to do that God says is good, then they ought to have the ability to carry that out on a number of levels, on funding, on power, on 
yes, big enough to do that, to have a scope big enough to do that. Uh, maybe a, a good way to picture that is if there are no, you know, if there's one police officer in the entire town of, or in the entire uh, county for us, how many people are going to be afraid of committing a crime? You know, probably not many. Uh, so, yeah, there does need to be sufficient scope to do what you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, good. Okay, what else? How would you apply wisdom from the Bible to government structure? Yep. Yeah, there's, and basically what that system was, uh, it was legal, it was courts, functionally. It was, it was just, it was almost like a, a court system where you would have uh, things leading all the way up to a Supreme Court of kind. So, and I think that, uh, I don't know what percentage of nations in our day are set up in this way, but I certainly know our, our own has that kind of principle where there are things that are the more difficult cases sort of rise upward in authority level. And yeah, so that kind of wisdom, applying that could be very good. Yeah. What else, Mark? And then Robert. Yeah, knowing what the government is actually for in the first place is, yes, that, that's a really big deal. So that, I mean, this is why so many things are, this is why there's going to be so much controversy about what to do because you have to actually define what government should be for and people don't really agree with that. They might not be able to articulate it or be going around saying that, but some people are trying to have the government exist in certain ways uh, because they think the government exists to just punish their enemies or the government exists to make their life as easy as possible or to provide them with everything. Or they think the government exists to provide them with literally the most possible freedom that you can have. Like those are the kinds of things that people, maybe they wouldn't articulate it, but they, they have these different goals. Like what do we want? As opposed to saying what should the government be doing? What is the purpose of it? And articulating that uh, intentionally. Okay, anything else? Yeah, it is going to become a burden to you. And yeah, so think about that because we do have the idea that one day Jesus will rule as a king. So there's something different about him in the way that he exercises that power that sounds like that's not generally going to be the case with most human rulers where 
we would, uh, when we serve under Christ, it's not going to be a burden for us to do that. But for most human rulers, it is for that reason that you're saying. So um, how, uh, how can we, yeah, how do we keep that in mind and know when we're setting this up, okay, uh, we want to avoid that. And I, I think, I guess, the, the larger point is that's, um, it's not nothing for your life to be made harder by the government. Like, this is, this is not an, a matter of no importance. And I think that's something what, that, that's behind what you're saying. This, this isn't just something we say, well, that's just the way that it is, or it doesn't matter because we should just endure it or put up with it. Like, no, this actually is a negative for people to have the government involved and, and laying this burden upon them to the degree that they do. And I think that people feel that. We, we all feel that in, in various ways. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when the government is too big, and what's too big, it's certainly subjective in some ways, but... In that case, he was saying it's going to be bigger than would be optimal for the kind of life that you would want to live. And it's not a problem for you to have wanted to live in that way, free from what he's imposing upon you. So, yeah, I think that's a great point you're bringing up. Okay, anything else? Yeah, Kyle. Yes. Okay, yeah, the rule, the rule of law. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me talk about that as well because that's on my list. Um, so when we learn from biblical history, just a couple of things as far as applying biblical wisdom. One would be learning from biblical history. We've already talked about this idea that man constantly misuses power, mistreats others. And so there is a need for the government to step in and stop that by executing good laws uh, to protect from mistreatment, oftentimes that is the only group that can do it. You know, to have some authority in life is a huge blessing. We often, I mean, you know, you guys have been, and if you've been in any kind of school setting where there's a bully, you know what it's like for that bully to be able to run free as long as the teacher doesn't know about it or won't do anything about it. But, uh, and you can't do anything about it yourself, so what do you do? Well, you know, you go, and if you, if you tell the teacher about this, then they decry you as a tattletale and whatever. You're just a baby. Well, they want to be able to continue to mistreat you without consequences. Similarly, the government steps in in that way, and it's the only recourse that people have. And it is a blessing to have someone who can stop people from mistreating you and from doing wrong. And that's so much of what I'm going to argue that the government should be involved in doing. Um, part of the reason why it punishes evildoers is for that purpose. It's not just justice, it's protection from mistreatment toward other people, which God is deeply concerned about. And we're going to see this even in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, sin in Daniel 4. Um, At the same time, it seems wise to me, and I think I'm hearing this from you, if possible, for the structure of government to be designed to offset the government then using its power to do the mistreating itself or to impose upon people's lives in ways that are unhelpful. So then governing without abusing power, actually governing without abusing power seems to be a pretty wise aim. And there are some ways people have talked about to maybe do that. One of these would be the separation of powers, separation of powers. Um, In our country, we have 
three main branches of the federal government. You guys know what they are? What we learn in school, what are they? Legislative, executive, and judicial. Legislative writes the laws. Now, in theory, the legislative writes the laws, the executive enforces the laws, and the judicial judges based upon those laws. I know that people would make the case that certain of those branches aren't doing their job or they step into the other branches. But in theory, um, the, the design is that the people who write the laws are not the ones who are enforcing the laws and not the one judging the law. But there's a division to protect against someone being able to misuse the power that they have in those situations. Uh, Wayne Grudem in his books, Politics According to the Bible, in his book, rather, um, argues for this. He says, quote, because of the presence of sin in every human heart, and because of the corrupting influence of power, there should be a clear separation of powers at every level of civil government. And he points to the abuse of unchecked power by various kings in the Old Testament. Um, now, I mean, I think that there is there's some validity to doing that in that it does seem to prevent certain abuse. Um, I also would argue that uh, I believe it was said by at least some of our our own country's founding fathers, that even a system of government so deliberately designed originally to limit the power that men had over others was still nonetheless dependent upon the character of the people who were placed into those roles. And as you see people trying to uh, get out of, use their role in one branch of government to try to get into the, uh, the, ex the execution of using power that rightly belongs to another branch of government, you see that the human heart continues to try to do that even though the law may be written in a certain way. So this is not a flawless uh, system, but maybe this is a really good way to limit the effect of depravity of man upon the human heart. So this could be uh, a wise application of trying to avoid that. Um, another way that may be, may be possible would be democracy which would be that the people are involved in some way or another in deciding the law or in at least electing those who do. Of course, democracy is not commanded in the Bible. In fact, many times when the people are the ones making the decision, you end up with something like them pressuring Pilate to crucify Jesus. So democracy is not a cure in and of itself. Uh, but it can have certain benefits as far as limiting the ability of the government to abuse its power how might it do that how does it prevent the misuse of governmental authority how does democracy do that Yeah, so they can look and say, this person, I don't want a, a dictator. I want somebody that's going to rule the way that I should. Yeah, Jim. Okay, democracy only works if the majority agree with your point of view. So if they, if they, if they vote in people that shouldn't be in, then, then you have problems. Okay? Other thoughts on democracy? Are you for it? Are you against it? You like it? Do you like being able to vote? Is it good? I mean, there are some, some good things to it. Yeah, Rachel.
Yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, the idea of everybody is made equal before God in terms of value. And, uh, and that's actually one of the, uh, um, later in the same book I mentioned from Grudem earlier, he makes several arguments for uh, democratic government. He, and one of them that he points to is equality in God's image. Everybody is made in the image of God. Um, in addition to being accountable to the people, uh, the government officials being accountable to the people, and who might know best what best serves the people but the people themselves. And it kind of uh, gets it out of the ivory tower of let me just be separated from people and rule according to what's best in my interest. And it, and it sort of forces you to grapple with the things that people are going on, uh, have going on in their real day-to-day life. Uh, he also argues that, it, that uh, the most effective form of government is that which is on the basis of the consent of the governed. So if people are not happy being ruled by someone, then that's gonna, they're going to do it grudgingly and they're going to have a hard time with it. And certainly um, that can be the case. I think biblically, as Christians, we're instructed and commanded to follow them and to submit to them anyway, even if we don't like the preferential decisions that they make, as long as they're not trying to get us to disobey God. But nonetheless, he does argue from that uh, from that view. Um, I would make a couple of other uh, arguments just to consider when we think about democracy, and these are a little bit more of a just uh, trying to apply wisdom. These are not definitive things. I think that sometimes democracy uh, would be not as much, and this is along, I guess, what Jim was saying along the lines of that, but uh, de- democratic government can be prone to pumping out sort of windsock politicians who go with what they think the crowd wants at any given moment rather than principled people who are going to be elected and then, well, they're going to go according to what they really and truly believe. So we're going to vote on the best guy who generally agrees with what we think should be done on principle, but then uh, we say we're going to trust him to make these decisions. I don't really see that being the way that people seem to operate in the political sphere today. It does seem to be where things are very driven by uh, what will be the consequences for my next election campaign. Now, that's just my opinion, and you may have your own about that, but that's another thing to consider as far as the effectiveness of uh, democracy in putting principled people into office or not. Um, The other thing, of course, is that there are other factors besides just voters that get people into office today. And um, in our system, there can easily be corruption to lean toward more appealing constituents, people who are major campaign donors, people who can provide you with the funds to then go into campaign effectively toward other people and who can help you to win that vote. Um, maybe even while you're in office, lobbyists who can offer you uh, cushy jobs when you're out of office, things like that. Uh, I have a personal opinion that's just not very well tested and you're free to disagree with me on that federal government officials who are elected should be paid a whole lot more than they are, like maybe millions of dollars a year because uh, it would entice people who would otherwise not consider doing the job to do it. And also, it can dull the effect, uh, potential effect of lobbyists upon them and, uh, and of donors who would try to get them rich or who would tempt them to sort of twist and turn to, uh, out of corruption to do that. Again, this is a very untested opinion, but, uh, and I don't even know that I would argue for it. But really, just 
thinking about the, the number of factors that are involved in our own system and the depravity of man's heart and how easily unprincipled people can just go aside and can follow after whatever is going to get them power and money and influence. So anyway, I'm just throwing that out there as a, a little bit of a provoking thought to think about. Um, yeah, the other principle that was mentioned is the rule of law, the rule of law, and uh, ruling by means of the law versus just the person is the ultimate seat of government. So is the law subject to the person or is the person subject to the law? And um, we can see that, or we, should, we can say that everyone should be equal under the law. And in fact, that's a great way to operate. Even in Old Testament Israel, this was true. Can you think of an example of how in Israel... People were not above the law. Anytime someone tried to be and didn't get away with it. There was a king named Uzziah. Uzziah was greatly helped by the Lord until he became prosperous. But when he became strong, 2 Chronicles 26 tells us that he violated God's command by entering the temple to burn incense. He was not allowed to do that. He wasn't a priest. He's the king, so, you know, hey, God has helped me. God is with me. I'm going to go do this. And he violated the law, and he went in to do that. And Azariah, a priest, and 80 other priests, they came into the temple, and they called him out. They said, you can't do this. It is not for you, O king, to do this. You're not allowed. And if it weren't for literal divine intervention on the spot, uh, he would have taken them out. He would have misused his power to go against the law. Um. We can have the principle of the rule of law, but it's not flawless in that people will still find ways to just disregard it, or people will find ways to go around it. Um, they will rewrite the laws in some way or just ignore them. I, th I would say in general, the rule of law principle is a very good one for the law to be that which determines the ultimate authority. And yet at the end of the day, someone is enforcing them. Someone has the opportunity to change them. Someone has the ability to judge them. And they don't always necessarily follow what the law says. All of this to say that there is no perfect solution on a structural level to the depravity of man's heart. And what we have to do is just say, what are the trade-offs of each system? What is the best way to account for this in our own setting and the best thing that we could come up with? And I hope as you're hearing these things that when you think about the, uh, the way in which our government works, that this makes you not, um, I would hope that this makes you lean toward thankfulness for what we do have. I mean, when you think about how corrupt and how bad and how much mistreatment could go on from the government, and you think about the, the relative freedom and the relative uh, ability to live our lives and uh, how people are punished for doing what is bad and uh, how the government functions in that way. Yes, it's a burden in many ways. Yes, it doesn't always get it right. Yes, there are corrupt politicians and so on. But, but I hope that you can look at this and see, see the potential for problems and realize just kind of how good we have it in a lot of ways, even if there are things that we would love to change. And we can talk about how and when we ought to do that at some point soon. Um, so then, government structure, there's no perfect cure for the problems caused by the sinfulness and finiteness of man. In fact, in many ways, the way that government works is designed to uh, mitigate those problems in the first place. 
So we recognize that. We know there's no perfect solution until Christ reigns. And then we will have everything one day be completely perfect. Uh, We'll have to talk in the next class about government officials and what they ought to be. And then we'll talk about what, what functions the government ought to have. But we're out of time for this morning, so let me pray for us. God, thank you that uh, you've given us the chance to be here and that you have given us, a, you've given us your word to show us what you, what you say about man, what you say about people who have authority. And we pray that you would help us to remember to pray for those who are in authority, that we would uh, think rightly about what you expect and what you want government to be. And we pray that you would help uh, to bring that about in our own areas, whether our, whether our city, our state, our, our nation, that the government would be pleasing to you and the governing officials would be pleasing to you. And we pray that you would help us to, to do what we are supposed to do in response to what we see. We pray that your name would be glorified through that. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.